Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. Today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome back Jeremy Roll. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Thank you kindly. You're, you're a three-time guest now. <laughs> you've oh, <I> the... <laughs> Wow, I thought it was the second time. I'm losing track, so sorry. I think you came, you, you, you came twice uh, within a very short amount of time, and then yes. this is the third time. It's been yeah. a while since we, we did the first two episodes. Yes. So thank you so much for coming back. Um, how's uh, sunny California doing? How's it, your neck it, of the woods? I'm looking outside. It's sunny. <laughs> it's <laughs> the usual California weather. You know, we're recording this in March and it's it's almost like the same thing every day. So I, I used to, you know, I grew up in Montreal. So I've been through the tough weather and very cold and snowy weather. So, um, you know, just so people don't think I was here my whole life. So I've been through the tough part, but the, this is the easy part now with the weather. Yeah, nothing to complain about. That's why it's called sunny California. The weather is yeah. certainly beautiful. Yeah. All right. So let's jump straight into some of the geopolitical events that are happening in the world and how it's impacting uh, U.S. economy. So the war in Ukraine, the invasion, the Putin's war um, is obviously hurting a lot of people. A lot of people are dying. A lot of people are uh, injured. It's a, it's a massive humanitarian crisis. I grew up in Republic of Moldova, which was part of the Soviet Union on the border with Ukraine. My wife is from Ukraine. A lot of folks that I know are from Ukraine. So Ukraine is certainly dear to my heart and uh, their pain is my pain. So um, I, I, I'm certainly uh, very, very uh, upset about the whole situation. I wish this war will come to some kind of a resolution. I, I don't know what it'll take for this war to come to a, a rapid end, but um, any quick thoughts on this? And then we're going to go to the main question. What is this war doing for uh, to, to the U.S. economy? What is it doing to the global economy? What what are your thoughts on, on this painful subject? Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah, I'm very sorry, obviously, for your wife and family and everything else. Um, it's uh, there's a lot of bad things going on, obviously, overseas. Um, my understanding, uh, or my best guess on it anyway, based on everything I've read about, it, I've read quite a lot about it, is that hopefully the war won't extend too far in terms of many cities and everything else. That obviously, would be a best case scenario, and frankly, hopefully, it'll just come to an end sooner or later. Um, so I just hope there are obviously the least amount of injuries and deaths possible from here on in. Uh, that's the most we can hope for, I think, you know. That's right. Um, but what do you think about the economic impacts? Obviously, the the end of war, it'd be great if there was a, a resolution, but I, I want to spend a lot of time. I, I, I strongly believe that, that unfortunately Putin has become very close to what Stalin used to be. And it's very difficult for him to walk away without declaring some kind of a victory, even, even if it's not a victory. Nonetheless, the uh, Russian economy has been completely in shambles and the whole thing has been turned off. So the energy markets are greatly impacted, obviously. And the, now you can't say it's it's only the Russian uh, invasion is causing the oil price going through the roof, but it's certainly uh, having some impact. So just from your understanding, again, you have a great economic mind. Uh, what are your thoughts, just energy, anything else? Uh, what's the impact on the U.S.? 
Yeah, so great question. So I think that there's a number of impacts. Um, I do want to point people to the fact that prior to the war, oil was already very high in the U.S. It was, you know, the U.S. Uh, oil was the WTI was in the 80 to 90 dollar range. So we're obviously higher than we were. But, um, you know, it was already starting from a high place for other reasons. And I think that um, it's interesting because there's a lot of important roles that the, that uh, Russia plays as far as supplying energy and food in the world. Uh, a lot of people don't realize, and I, I hope I have my numbers right, they may be off by a little bit, but for example, I believe that Russia oil, uh, oil supplies about 10% of the world's oil. They supply an unbelievable uh, amount of gas, uh, natural gas to various cities in Europe and, and other um, countries as well. Um, they um, provide, I, I think, if I have it right, about 25% of the world's wheat, which, you know, if you can imagine how wheat is in everything, um, and, or shouldn't say in everything, but in many things, and a very high percentage of the world's corn as well. And these are basic important staples. And of course, with the, um, with some of the measures that the U.S. have uh, proactively taken from an economic perspective, I don't think that in the U.S. we can uh, think to see any of these commodities being imported into the U.S. anytime soon beyond, I think there's like a 45-day window for some of them. So um, I do think that that's going to cause some potential challenges for us here. I do think it, it has definitely impacted inflation and will continue to impact inflation. And the thing is, I don't think it's a question of the war just coming to an end. I can't imagine that you know president biden is going to reverse these bans right all of a sudden um maybe i'm wrong maybe be part of a settlement maybe it actually helped to get everything to a, a final you know conclusion sooner rather than later but i do think it will have a long-term impact now interestingly um the us only uh, the us consumption of oil is only three percent russian oil so uh, but what's killing me and i i'm not i don't even vote because i'm just fed up with politicians on all sides right but uh, but what's killing me is that we have the potential to increase production in the U.S. and we're not. And I understand it's for environmental purposes, but we also what's killing me is that the reality now is with inflation where it is and going up. I was telling my wife, I mean, there are people who have to choose between driving to work and eating lunch, you know, and that's not just like a line. It's a fact. So um, it's killing me a little that the U.S. isn't taking a stance on increasing the production of oil to at least help with supply because it's a big supply problem at the moment. Uh, but that's a different story. I do think that what's happened from a Federal Reserve perspective is it's basically, uh, you know, we're recording this in March and we, we have the um, lucky timing that the Federal Reserve had its meeting yesterday and announced that it was doing its first 25 basis point increase. But what's interesting about what they announced is that they, I think that that wasn't a surprise, obviously, but what was surprising to me is that I think traders expected a four to five uh, increase, uh, four to five 25 basis point increases over the year. The Fed specifically very clearly said that they're planning on seven increases total, including the one they did yesterday. So another six. And that was surprising. And I think they're kind of starting to feel like they have no choice but to deal with inflation, even at the, um, you know, the detriment of the economy. And, and I, I want to put one more thing in people's minds, which is, you know, as you're thinking about this whole scenario, I personally a very strong believer that the government and the Fed realize that they can't let inflation go on for a couple of years compounded because, you know, that, you know, as we all probably would agree that like prices won't come down later, right? Your box of cereal probably isn't going to go down a dollar at some point. It's going to maybe go flat for a while, right? Your rent isn't expected to decrease 20% once inflation subsides, right? It's just not realistic. And there, there's going to get to a point where it'll have a very long-term and detrimental impact on society. And we can get into that too, but some people believe that's going to happen. And some people believe the answer to it is going to be universal basic income. 
right? So there's all different angles you could take on it. A lot going on, a lot changing all the time. And one more thing I just want to throw in is I'm watching the yield curve very, very closely. Uh, I've been watching it as a signal as a potential recession coming up. It's my number one indicator. And, you know, the, the five and the 10 year uh, yield curve inverted after the announcement. It's currently not inverted today, but only by one basis point. The seven and 10 year, I think, has been inverted for a while. The two and the 10 year now, as of right now, before we got on, is maybe 26 basis point spread. So very close to inverting and been heading in that direction. So all indicators are pointing to a high probability of a recession coming up. And what's interesting is that a recession typically occurs uh, from three different factors, okay? Uh, inflation, increasing interest rates, or a dramatic increase in commodities, especially oil. We actually have all three at the same time, which is actually unusual. And so to me, the probability of recession, it's not 100% clearly, but it's very high at the moment in the next six to 18 months, I would say. Wow, that was a lot. You, you, yeah, you just compacted <laughs> a, a lot of great uh, nuggets here. So I'll provide, provide some quick commentary. And, and so I, I, I certainly follow the yield curve and uh, everything you said on the um, projected uh, Fed rate increases and the yield curve uh, inverting certainly on my mind. I, I literally wrote last night some um, uh, a few sort of mini mini thoughts, and it, it's coming out um, uh, as a you know a, a newsletter next week. But it's almost identical to yours uh, that the the yield curve needs to invert before we have a high confidence of the recession, and it does typically recession follows anywhere from, I think, one year to you know two years after the yield curve inverts. And I think that's the two, two to 10 inversion. So if we see that, then the probability of some level of recession uh, is likely, especially with Fed moving the lever, the, the, the uh, interest rate lever so fast. It's not just the, the rate increases, it's the speed of increase in there. Well, they're relative from a very low base points Yes. To uh, the relative impact, it, it's not like five or ten percent increase. In some yes. cases, it's going to be 20, 30, 40, 50 percent increase on the debt service for yes. some of these low, low yielding bonds. So, um, from that perspective, uh, just uh, th that's um, critical. So, let's go back. Oh, one, one more quick commentary on, on Russia and um, Ukraine. Well, Ukraine is one of the largest wheat producers. So I wanted to add that comment too. So the war in Ukraine is obviously taking massive amount of wheat out of um, circulation and obviously causing <coughs> inflation. So it's the same point you said, both Russia and Ukraine, the production of wheat will come down and uh, the food and energy prices here are obviously greatly impacted. So, so but let, let's go back quickly to, to, the, to the Fed action. So they obviously took a more measured step. Uh, the general consensus pre-meeting that the Fed was going to raise rates about 50 basis points. That, that, that was at least my understanding that there was a like, more likely scenario. Maybe the war in Ukraine um, basically gave him a pause, turned him into a little bit more hawkish opinion. And the stock market uh, reacted pretty positively to more hawkish Fed, even though they uh, announced likely every meeting they're going to do some kind of an increase, and they have seven meetings coming. So, what do you think? Um, and who's impacted? Who is the most impacted by these rate increases? What kind of businesses? My sort of a view is the McDonald's of the world with high inflation actually benefit because they can raise prices. 
some of these biotech companies and other technology companies that don't have a big install base, the cost of money goes up a lot. And then if they have over-leveraged balance sheets, it's a lot of pain. What are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. It's very complicated, you know, because like I was actually just reading an article yesterday about Wendy's and because of the inflation on the um, on, on the uh, wholesale side for them, all their costs, um, they're going to be increasing the prices of um, kind of a la carte items, for example, but keeping their four dollar menu or whatever that four for four menu or whatever it is. Right. Because they're scared. They're scared to raise prices on and to potentially lose sales and that they're scared that the consumers are not going to just absorb all the price increases. So they're going to do on the stuff that maybe isn't as popular. They think they can kind of push the needle, but they're, they're afraid to change their current promotions. Um, and that's obviously going to impact profitability. So from like a, from a stock market perspective, if the companies can't pass it along or don't want to pass all of it along, their profits are going to obviously decrease. And that's a, that's a challenge for the stock market and earnings. Right. Um, I would say that, um, God, there's so many different angles you can look at this. Some businesses will be able to pass it along easily. Uh, some won't. Um, you know, it's funny. I read another article uh, today about Rivian, which is an electric um, uh, car maker, right? And they just came out with their first vehicle. It's a pickup truck. And they're, they're privately owned. They're, Jeff Bezos is a big investor in them. And they literally just increased. Like, you had pre-orders for a year or two, okay? They just increased. The, the base price of both of their vehicles by 17 and 20% respectively prior to then they just launched deliveries a couple of weeks ago, but before they did it, they have to raise uh, prices. And there's been a backlash online because somebody that ordered a car with a base price of 70,000 is out being asked to pay 84. And what they're actually doing is saying, okay, well, you were going to have this and this an option. We can keep you in a similar price range with a worse model. That's kind of their solution is you can pay the same price, but you get the worst model, right? And someone's been waiting a year or two for this model. And so um, really each company is going to be impacted differently as to whether they can really pass the true cost along. What I'm really concerned about, Mike, is the fact that I just don't believe that the inflation numbers that the government produces are real and that they've been adjusted over time. They're actually adjusted in January once again, the basket of goods to help them look lower than it really is. And if you look at the pre-1982 calculation, which is when they first, when they really got a hold on it to bring inflation down, we're at 15% right now. And what I'm, yeah, and what I'm really concerned about as an investor is how do I keep up, keep up with that 15% after-tax return? And are my uh, investments gonna be able to pass along 15% rent increases or 15% increases in revenue, whatever it is that I'm investing in, right? And I think that's a big challenge that I'm not necessarily relying on. So, you know, it's not just consumers that are probably going to fall behind, it's investors. And I want to just point one other piece of data out that's very important. I don't know if everybody knows this, but for the past 11 months now, um, the, the average median income, sorry, the, the average, uh, the median household income um, in wage uh, inflation adjusted is actually negative. The, the actual uh, median household income is not keeping up with uh, inflation increases, but that's actually based off of the inflation that's published. The real inflation is worse, most likely. So consumers are already falling behind. We're talking about for a year now, right? And now inflation just starting to pick up worse. And so this is a big problem. I, my personal hope is that hopefully the Fed will increase quicker than not, because I think it could have a big impact on society. And going back to real estate, I think that it's going to have an impact on asset prices. 
if you look at home mortgages, which is an easy metric to follow because they, they react very quickly, um, home mortgages are up 100 basis points in just a, three months from the beginning of the year. And um, the Fed actually, as part of what they announced yesterday, is that their total expected interest rate increase compared to prior expectations is now 25 to 50 basis points total higher down a couple of years, not just for this year, the total. So I expect mortgage, mortgage rates to head up uh, uh, further, another probably 50 basis points, give or take 25 basis points, because a lot of this is already built in. It's already built, like, you know, the expectation is already built into the increase. But, um, and I think that obviously on the real estate side and the business side, all these interest rate increases are going to make a big difference. And Mike, I think you made it an extremely important point. People talk about 25 basis points. It doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're starting from a very small number, the percentage increase is really what you have to look at for the debt service. And so don't get caught up in the fact that you're like, oh, they're only raising at 50 basis points, 75. No, you got to look at what it's at today and how much it's going up percentage wise. Forget the actual uh, you know, nominal value because that's really what matters. And I think it's going to have an impact. Yeah, Jeremy, great commentary. Just love having your wisdom here. You, you have phenomenal uh, ideas. I share many of these ideas. And um, uh, I appreciate the wisdom. Yeah, these small, rel on absolute basis, small increases actually uh, very large on relative basis. And that's, that's the affordability, the mortgage payment, uh, half a percent increase in, in the mortgage rates or based on where the rates are today could cut affordability by 20%, by the 25%. It's a massive impact on the payments. So it, it does hurt the, uh, the affordability. But the one point you mentioned, which kind of is a little surprising to me, and, and I, I've heard different data and I don't have all the data. I have, I wish I had all, <laughs> what data are you gonna trust? I'm, I'm gonna take yeah, a step yeah. back, like you said. Yeah. The reported inflation is, is heavily manipulated. And just like you, I'm, I'm convinced we are in most certainly double-digit inflation. I didn't have 15% figure, but it's probably somewhere in the double digits at the very, very minimum. But let me go back to, to the point of wage inflation. So um, if you follow the, the Phillips curve, obviously uh, the, the unemployment is very low. It's, 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 it's dangerously low. As a result, the inflation is high. That's what the Phillips curve tells us. During the periods of very low unemployment, you're going to have high inflation, and that's happened. But normally, the other side effect is the wages are going up for the reasons that it's just competitive. Corporations need to hire, and there's shortage of labor, a lot of open positions, and they wind up paying more. This is happening. I hear it anecdotally, and, and, and I, I don't have the aggregate data. So my expectation is that with this tight labor market, the wages have to go up. And then that will counterbalance to a degree the higher cost of uh, interest um, debt payments on mortgages and other uh, things that are linked to the higher interest rates. So what do you think about why you're seeing wages are not yet keeping up with, with inflation? Again, I, didn't ex I don't expect the wages to be in the 15% range, but I expect them to be sub still substantially higher, not your normal 2-3%, maybe 7 8 9%. That would be sort of what I would love to see. Yeah, good, good question. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. First is we're gonna to have to see where wages go because really 
Uh, now that the inflation is really kicking this year, consumers are seeing the gas price go up. I think they're going to start demanding more because now it's really starting to very visibly impact them. It's very obvious it's in the media, et cetera. So I think we'll need to wait six, 12 months to see really what happens with negotiations with employees. I think one very important data point that a lot of people don't realize is, you know, the labor force participation is still lower. It's pre-pandemic. It's a couple of points lower than pre-pandemic. It's causing a problem, right? Because there aren't enough people to hire. But what's so fascinating is that um, the there were 9 million small businesses created in 2020 and 2021, partially like, well, partially because of stay-at-home pandemic, partially because there was a lot of stimulus money given to people they can actually choose to start a business, but they may have not otherwise had, right? And What's, what I think is going to happen, which I haven't seen discussed anywhere, but just mathematically, if somebody started a business two years ago and they had limited funds and they obviously have a limited amount of runway to, to actually make it work. And most businesses fail within the first two to five years. Right. Ninety percent, I think, fail in the first five years. I think in the next year or two, we're going to see a lot of those people have to go back to jobs. I mean, it's just numbers. It's just data. You know, I, I don't know this first fact, but it's just extrapolating. So I do think that we're going to start to see more people returning to the workforce uh, you know, as, as time goes on, it's going to increase because that's part of the problem here in the gap with with um, not being able to hire enough people. A lot of people don't realize that's happened. Um, I also want to point out that, you know, the wage. So part of the challenge with uh, increasing wages is that it causes like uh, the death spiral is not a good way to look at it, but it causes a huge inflationary spiral. So what happens is that if you have to increase wages by 10 percent, call it OK then you have to pass that along to customers or you end up with a much lower profit margin, right? And in some cases, can you or cannot? So then you lead to price increases, but then the price increases, those employees can no longer afford what they could afford when they got their original increase. And now they're asking for higher wages again. And it's literally a spiral that that's the big thing that the Fed wants to avoid. Because if we get to that, that is a huge problem. Right. And so I think that part of that will be helped by additional uh, participants coming back into the labor force, but that could take another year or two. So in the meantime, that's why I think it's so critical for um, for the Fed to raise rates, because I think by the Fed raising rates, they're going to put a brakes on the economy. The um, the employers will, will have to slow down, not hire as many people, maybe even lay off people. And as a result, there'll be more people in the workforce to then get those other jobs. Right. And so you have to think of it like that too. increasing wages. Um, I'm not saying that people don't deserve to earn more, but I'm just saying and it's a fact that that's the one thing that wants to be avoided, like the Fed wants to avoid in this particular circumstances, getting to the point where you're like beyond the tipping point of that spiral that we're talking about. So it's something for everyone to keep in mind as they're watching the news going forward. Well, in some ways, uh, we, we, this wage inflation between um, sort of the, the, the tug of war between the, the prices going up and then the, the wage inflation incomes going up is not necessarily all that bad. In, in some ways, it, it's actually a positive thing. Uh, turning that into hyperinflation is the risk. Uh, but um, the, the wages have been stagnant for too long. And as you said, this commodity-driven inflation, energy-driven inflation, is a major tax. People have to drive. People have to eat. So it's 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 hitting the um, um, the poor. It's hitting those who don't yes. have this the disposable income above the necessities. So you're absolutely right that th this is absolutely uh, worst for the um, low income um, uh, part of the labor force. So, but let's continue just moving along because it's it's a great concept. We could we could chat on this for for a long time. So uh, now let's go into the real estate a little bit, little bit more. 
Uh, one point that I, I, I absolutely appreciated what you said when you talked about the, the, the car purchase, you signed up to buy a car for $70,000. By the time it com comes uh, off the assembly line, it's now $84,000 in the config that you uh, ordered. The same, by the way, what's really interesting is the same thing is happening on the new house construction. I, I've spoken with a number of folks who build uh, ground up and that's exactly the point. People go into the contract and then um, their product takes much longer to deliver, but the price goes up and there is uh, some, some contract disputes. What the reality is, the contracts that are written, that there is a very variability linked to the cost and all the new contracts are written that way now. Um, the, the, the price goes up quite, quite a bit because of the cost driven inflation not necessarily whether the person can, can still afford to buy it or not. It's just the developer can't afford to sell it for less because they spend so much more on the development. So the supply of housing is still very short. And yes. the development of new product is under substantial pressure from the commodity prices being higher and higher and higher and supply chain being broken. So as much as um, the interest could go up, there's still substantial uh, disbalance in the equilibrium of supply and demand in housing. So we're just talking about residential. The other really interesting thing that happens that um, just again, would love to hear your thoughts uh, as affordability worsens. Again, let, let's just say interest rates go up, the wages don't keep up, the uh, affordability drops. What do people have, what, what, what options do they have? Typically they can scale down. So if they were planning to buy half a million dollar house. Now they have to buy $450,000 house. So they scale down to a small house yeah. or at the lower part of the spectrum, there's always the option of substitution effect and go rent something nice, but just, just don't pay the mortgage. So what are your thoughts on the substitution effect? If the rates go up, typically few people, fewer people can afford to buy, they're forced to rent. And that sort of uh, put, puts a little bit more pressure on, on um, rental product. Yes. Uh... The, the interesting thing, look, we have a big uh, housing uh, just unit supply uh, problem in the US. We've had it for a long time, it's gotten worse. And the irony is that if a developer wants to go in and build either a brand new apartment building or brand new house, the costs are so high that they typically have to position it as a class A or nicer house, right? Or class A apartment building, because that's, that's the only way to profitability at the moment. The irony is that's not what we need in supply, right? We need class B and C workforce housing, right? And so you have to wonder whether there might not be better ways to try to increase the supply of housing um, it, in cheaper ways. Like for example, you can incentivize someone to go in and take what maybe was a a dilapidated house that maybe wasn't really, nobody was living in it, it wasn't really inhabitable at this point and rehab it. But because their cost basis is so much lower than replacement costs, now you're putting a more affordable unit on the market, right? That's a side discussion for another time, but it's, you know, it just, it's just so unfortunate that when somebody builds housing to increase supply right now, it's always on the high end because it has to be because of cost, right? Let me just jump in very, very quickly with one important point. So I absolutely agree with you with that point. And there's one opportunity that we've seen, we've actually been invest, investing quite a bit in this strategy, this conversion of an old hotels to workforce housing. Yes, it's 20 to 30% lower cost, right? It's about 30% lower cost, I think. Yes, and that's it's a great example. And it's obviously a better use for today. And it ends up being a totally lower cost. And that, that's a fantastic example of that business model. So thank you. Yes, I'm familiar with that. Um, and so, um, 
anyway, so you know, substitution effect is very real. It's going to happen at the end of a cycle. Whether it was interest rates increasing or housing prices increasing, it's, net, net, it's a, the same effect in the end. The net, the net effect is the same. Affordability peaks at a certain point. And that's typically how a housing cycle ends. We get to a certain affordability level and you're done. Right. I could tell you in California, for example, if you look at the National Association of Realtors, because that's where I live, once you get to in L.A., once you get to 17 percent affordability um, based on how they calculate it, that's the that's the top like that. That's actually if you look at analysis of all the past cycles, right, for many decades now. So you could track affordability in your area and sort that out. But the bottom line is, of course, once we run into affordability problems, people either have the downsides and frankly, they're forced to. The bank will not lend them the money to buy the nicer house anyway, right? So they're going to have to downsize or they're going to have to rent and hold off their purchase. And I do think that substitution effect is very real. And of course, we saw it actually in 2009, 10, 11, 12. There was a surge in demand for apartments and actually home rentals as well. So uh, very likely that that's going to become much more popular in the next few years based on where we are today in the cycle just how the cycles work. Great points. Um, you had the, the number exactly on the point. I was going to say, uh, I knew the number. Uh, I, I was following, you, you probably know him, uh, Bruce Norris. He's uh, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, and that's the number that he predicted the crisis. Well, I don't know if he predicted, but uh, he certainly pointed out that around 17% affordability the, in California, it causes very substantial problems. And that's, that's probably as low as you go. After that, the prices just can't go up anymore. Yes, uh, and actually, so the, NASA, the California Association of Realtors publishes that data quarterly. Um, and I'm eagerly waiting to see what happens because we just had the interest rate increase. So it's, it's a little bit lagged but, or delayed, I should say. But um, I'm waiting to see what it looks like in Q2 or Q3. I forget, I actually look at it every quarter just to understand where we are. And I feel like we're either at 26 or 23. I'm sorry, because it's like there, I look at it every quarter, but it's one of those two numbers where we stand today. So we're getting close. How much will 100 basis point that we've already seen increase and impact that? I don't know how they calculate it, but I think probably substantially based on the fact that percentage change is quite high. So we'll have to see. Yeah, I remember running the math a while, while back. Um, and uh, even a quarter percent increase when you have the rate somewhere in the three and a half, four percent basis, it's, it's your payment. I mean, think about this. If you're paying, three and a half and a quarter increases like 8% increase. So if you have two quarter increase 50 basis points on top of three and a half, that's around 16% affordability change. So what you were paying before versus now, I don't know how that reflects to the actual affordability index, right? but, but it's it certainly uh, a half a percent increase in the mortgage rates um, would increase your payment. And using the DTI formula, that to income ratio that the banks underwrite that whole Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac uh, underwriting bucks is, is certainly written at this point after the 2008 crisis. It's written pretty, pretty hard. So uh, they, the people will just not get those mortgages. They'll, they'll have to bring more cash down. By the way, that, that's been the solution in California. I, I hear that in the bidding wars and all the competitive environment, the only solution becomes is bring more cash. As a down payment, borrow less money if you want to buy that given house, right? Or buy for cash or if you have the cash, or if not, just bring a, a bigger down payment if you can't afford um, the pay, your, your payment is capped simply because of the DTI ratio. Yeah, and actually there are some, some like online solutions now, more like you know, tech companies that provide all cash pre-approved. Pre like they basically, you say, look, I want to buy this house. They'll give you all the cash up front and then they'll basically broker a loan for you after. So you can close as a quote unquote, all cash you know, buyer. Um, so you can be competitive in the bid, but then they'll have a contractual obligation with you to then uh, get a loan through you. And I guess there's probably a certain percentage minimum down that they have, and they probably have some type of lien against the home or something in, in the contract. I don't know how it works, 
but that's actually providing a lot of these cash buyers with the ability to close, even though they're not real cash buyers too. Yeah, I've heard of this concept. It's funny. Um, one of uh, actually my good friends, he's a member of the Collective Genius Mastermind. He mm -hmm. came up with the same idea, or maybe he he was trying to, to run the same idea, but being a small player versus this this 40,000 pound gorillas. Yes. The, the idea is certainly very cute to, to give you a competitive edge while you are bidding on the property. The problem is after the closing, what if? Oh, yeah. <laughs> borrower can't get the mortgage they need. What yes. happens then? I don't even know what happens then. Yeah, what happens then is, yeah, you see the Zillow effect where they overpay because now they're buying something full retail. They have to resell it probably to similar price. They're going to have to take the uh, all the closing cost hit and it's going to be a loss, right? So, and that that's inherently why, like, I do hard money lending is one of the many things I do. And that's inherently why you don't loan at 100% loan to value, right? That's the whole concept. That's for that reason. That's right. And the when you hear these fintech VC backed um, I buyers or other technology companies the, the, stepping into into any market, they just want the market share. They don't care if they lose money. They call it uh, investment or they call it um, uh, technology testing. They're, they're spending billions of dollars testing the technology, and it's inherently dangerous because it, it, it's not necessarily. Uh, prudent or, or decisions are being made purely from the fact that a lot of money is just chasing these companies and they need to they, they need to prove that they have market share. Uh, and <laughs> I, I don't want to deviate, but there's this certainly a number of players today, even in the hard money space, that have been operating at substantial loss trying to capture market share just because um, they're fintech companies. I will say, though, that, you know, sentiment in um, tech world has changed very much so in the past few months since the beginning of the year, from what I understand. Um, there's been a huge shift from uh, growth to profitability mindset. Um, they're no longer funding growth as a number one focus in a lot of cases, a lot of the big VCs. Um, valuations have already adjusted. And, and a lot of people, you know, if you're just a pure real estate investor, you may not realize that NASDAQ's already down more than 20% right, from its high. So there's been a lot of change on the tech side. A lot of tech investors who, who or tech employees are now actually more fearful. And because valuations have changed, they're not actually deploying as much capital as individual credit investors into real estate deals. They've pulled back now from what I've heard from some sponsors. So that domino has already fallen. Um, and I don't know how many more dominoes will fall as a result of it in that line. But I think that we're going to see a big change in the amount of capital available for the model I described before, where, you know, you get the all cash close and other things as well. That's going to change a lot in the, in the next year. It's actually a good thing. As much as we're used to very low interest rate, everything is growing. Uh, the, the world just doesn't, doesn't move in a straight line. It needs these spirals. It needs some level of correction so that uh, the market participants can adjust and, and um, uh, folks who came in at the wrong time or were paid, uh, they take a loss and folks who come in opportunistically when the market cycles, they, they get a better buy. Um, so, but I, I, I do want to go back to very, very quickly and um, we don't have much more time, but I wanted to kind of um, uh, just hear your thoughts on other parts of real estate markets. So obviously housing, affordable housing and massive demand. So I think that product, by the way, the, um, the housing, the multifamily um, that specializes in um, workforce, affordable housing, in my view, and this is what I, I've heard, even though the rates are projected to go up, it's very possible that the prices for some of these assets will continue to strengthen or at least stay where they are 
because of this balance of a supply chain, so this balance of the supply and demand equilibrium. So the cap rates theoretically supposed to expand with high interest rates, but when demand is high and those assets um, should be able to pass um, rent increases with inflation, giving the substitution effect, those type of assets are expected to, to do fairly well. At least that, that's what that's what I what I heard. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, it's funny. I've invested in many low-income housing tax credit and tax-abated uh, income-restricted uh, apartment buildings in the last uh, 12 to 24 months. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but at least seven or eight. Um, and in fact, I'm investing in one right now, um, a two-property portfolio in Houston. And I, I agree to an extent. Um, the those types of buildings are meant to be defensive plays because inevitably what happens is that if you have a recession and a downturn and there's some downward pressure on rents, your building's already so much more below rent for the average rent. Uh, I'm talking about below market rent for the average rent that you have, uh, you don't have to necessarily be as exposed to reducing rents because you're already the cheapest player in town, right? And, and, and to your point, people are looking for more affordable housing. You're that, you're, that's, what, that's where the demand's going. So what typically happens is that you are right. The price doesn't adjust as much. Now, on the on the downside, though, is that the housing local housing authorities uh, dictate the maximum rent increases you can do, right? And what's interesting about a lot of these cases is that they're actually lagged. So often they publish them two years out, based on the last two years of inflation calculations. So they don't give you a number for 2022 that applies to the current inflation uh, scenario. You'll get you'll be able to catch up to that 2023 or 2024, depending on which housing authority you're dealing with. So there's a lagging effect that can be a challenge for investors, but it's definitely a defensive play to invest in those types of properties right now, for sure. Yeah, I appreciate that wisdom. Uh, quickly, other... Um asset classes in real estate. I don't know to what degree you invest in, uh, but what do you think about um, storage, industrial, uh, anything else that um, kind of comes to mind? Uh, what do you sure. think about office, people coming back? I, I, I've heard the office demand is, is, is strengthening because people are going back. Um, although not everyone, some, some, some companies have uh, adopted work from home to a greater extent. But at the same time, uh, I, I hear some offices coming back. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll go quickly through all that. I invest in all those. So self-storage, um, cool thing about self-storage is that because technically rents are, are paid monthly in most cases, um, they have the ability to keep up with inflation. Probably one of the best asset classes to do so because they have the ability to increase uh, more quickly than, you know, let's say a one-year apartment lease, for example, or even a five-year office lease or a five-year retail lease. So. Um, so that's an interesting one to look at for sure. Also with people potentially having to downsize because of cost of living, they may have to then increase their use of storage to store some of their stuff while they're hoping to transition for a couple of years into maybe finding a different home like we talked about because of the substitution effect. And one more thing I really like about storage, and by the way, I'm not like, I'm not like uh, representing the storage association or anything, but I just, you know, these are all facts and what happens uh, numerically is that they have the ability to increase um, rents on a percentage basis much more easily than a lot of other asset classes because you know when you're charging two hundred dollars and you're you're increasing twenty dollars a month that's a ten percent increase but it's twenty dollars and in most cases consumers don't want the hassle of having to come hire a moving truck or hire a truck themselves move everything they'd rather just pay the twenty bucks to avoid the hassle so it has probably better ability to increase rents to keep up with inflation than a lot of other asset classes in general Industrial is going to be interesting because industrial, depending on where you're located, often an industrial property is like this vanilla shell, 
Okay, and there aren't a ton of tenant improvements. There are some exceptions for sure, depending on the usage of it. But you're talking about just a, a big warehouse building, right? Um, so, um, the, and a lot of them are in more tertiary and secondary markets, just based off of where it's more, most economically sensible. Now, on one hand, in a normal downturn, there's a lot of variability in rent prices because it's vanilla share. You're competing against the next warehouse, and you're not you're not really having much of a competitive advantage, right? Um, you're not in an amazing location necessarily. You're just another box down the street from the other box that's vacant, right? There's not much difference to the person who's looking to rent it. But with the advent of the internet and with internet sales continuing to increase and online sales continuing to increase, it is possible that industrial could uh, fare better than a lot of other asset classes during a downturn, um, just because of the fact that there's continued demand to have more and more warehouses to be able to meet um, business models that are online. So we'll have to see what happens with that. But I would caution people that Historically, though, we're, uh, industrial really varies a lot in rents when there's a downturn because it's just a vanilla shell that is just more of a commodity. And then with um, what was that third one you mentioned? Office. Sorry, uh, office, office. And, and, and shopping plazas. Just just a couple of. OK, other. so office. Here's what's interesting about office. I On one hand, I absolutely agree. People are going back to work. Um, and I think we're going to see a big difference in working from home in the next year or two, I think that offices are gonna demand more and more people come back. They're gonna have more leverage, especially if we have a downturn and people are looking more actively for jobs. Um, at the same time, I think what everybody has to watch out for is that a lot of these office leases are three, five, seven, 10 year leases. So if you have an office that used to have hundred employees there in a day, but now it's got 50 or 75 and you're having a, you have, you're locked into a lease from 2018 that expires in 2023, right? In 2023, you're going to look to cut the space you use. You may not move it from that building, but you may not need 100% of the square footage you had before. And I think that's going to lead to a lot of downsizing in office demand um, to, to right size for the work from home. And if that happens, then even though there's strong demand right now, people coming back, I think that office is at risk of vacancy challenges or increased vacancy anyway, across a lot of properties in the, probably for the next five years, right? Just realistically. So that's something to watch out for. Retail is the exact same. A lot of retail leases, maybe three, five, seven, 10 years, depending, some are even longer for anchors. But again, you know, retails obviously had some carnage already, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, if, if the center had a lot of five-year leases that were signed in 2017, 18, 19, um, you haven't seen the full effect of those rolling over yet, and you potentially will. Um, and just like with Office, the retail footprints have come down over time because of the internet. And so uh, that's something to watch out for. You know, very important when you're looking at a retail deal, you've got to look at the tenant makeup and try to determine, is that tenant still going to need the amount of space it has? Even grocery stores are downsizing. Um, and so it's something to watch out for. Then again, a McDonald's may or may not downsize, right? Um, so just something to watch out for on a case-by-case -case basis, but definitely a risk. Yeah, great commentary. I appreciate that. And these, uh, the McDonald's and then these out parcels, they're the, the hottest commodity out there, uh, the Starbucks or whatever that, you know, that, that, that single tenant uh, space, that's the uh, that, that that appears to be at least uh, 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 one of the best parts of real estate on these shopping plazas. So, yeah, look, public public companies that are uh, properly rated by ratings agencies like McDonald's, Starbucks, they're always going to have a lot of demand. Um, you know, if they're doing well, um, those are very long term leases, triple net leases, and almost like bonds, so to speak. Clearly, they're not without risk, but I agree that those are a little subsection of, of that that could be interesting. Jeremy, uh, this was awesome. Got to come back. We have actually a lot more things to discuss, but we're running out of time. Don't want to yes. make the episode too long. 
So I appreciate you coming on this podcast. Please schedule back to come back in a few weeks. Let's do another episode. The wisdom you have is just just so rich and I uh, appreciate your view. And it, it's, um, uh, we'll see what happens. We, 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 we are, the, the world is sort of, the world events are developing rapidly. Hopefully we'll be in a better position uh, with, a, with a war in Ukraine then, but uh, we might, the next conversation, we might see some, some updates from, from Fed and something else uh, might, might come up fairly quickly. So thank you again. Uh, if folks wanted to reach out to you again, I, I don't know, you don't have to share, but if you want folks to reach out and they want to engage you as a consultant or, or have, you know, have you come as a guest on whatever they, they're doing, what, what's the best way to reach out? Yes, absolutely. So just, just to clarify, I cannot be engaged as a consultant just because I'm so busy. I just did not have time. So just FYI. But anyone's welcome to reach out to me. Uh, my email is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at rollinvestments, R-O-L-L, investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. And thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy, very much. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.